Dr. Havner said, the battle, the bugle, and the bugler. We need to understand the nature of the conflict. This is not conventional warfare. We are contending with an unseen world and agents from the very strongholds of evil. The bugle is our message, and it must be God's word and not our opinions. The bugler is the messenger. This is a day of voices, not echoes, and we need a clear-cut reveille, not a muffled discord. When God calls, will you answer his call? God has called us, all of us, some to vocational ministry, but God has called all of us to ministry. God called specifically in the life of Joshua and told him to lead his people. Then Joshua specifically and clearly caused the people to make provisions and preparation so that they would be ready to take the land that God had given them. God calls the leaders that Joshua speaks to to speak to the people and to say that the need is great and the hour is now and they must begin to prepare. Let me ask you something. If sometime in the next few moments, if God calls in your life and speaks to your heart about something specific that he wants you to do, will you do it? Will you answer the call of God on your life? It's going to happen, and you're going to hear that call if you do two or three things. First of all, there is a call to abide and obey. Look at verse 8 of Joshua chapter 1. A call to abide and obey. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Then Joshua commanded the officers of the people, saying, Pass through the midst of the camp, and command the people, saying, Prepare provisions for yourselves, for within three days you are to cross this Jordan to go in to possess the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess. The promises of God were not a couch to rest on. They were a standard to stand on and to move out from. God called his people to abide and to obey. There are two words there. First of all is the word abide. It says, shall not depart from your mouth. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you are to meditate on it day and night. John records the words of Jesus in chapter 15 when he says, You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Abiding in the word of God. You see, nobody ever graduates from Bible study. Maybe that's why they called it Sunday school years ago is because they knew that although we can graduate from middle school and graduate from high school and graduate from college, none of us ever graduate as students of the Bible. We don't graduate until we see the author face to face. The Word of God is either absolute or obsolete, and it is sufficient for every need and for every moment and at every hour if we will abide in it. Now, there are three assurances to those who abide in the Word of God. First of all, there is the assurance of divine authority, this book of the law. 
This is not a book of wishes and dreams and fairy tales and speculations of men. This is a book of the divine authority of God, the Word of God, the book of the law that gives us the principles and the precepts by which we live our lives. Secondly, there is the divine presence, the Lord, your God, he says in verse 9. He doesn't say the Lord God. He personalizes it. It is the Lord, your God, the divine presence. No matter what you walk through in these days ahead, no matter what obstacles you face, no matter what mountains you have to climb, no matter how dreary the future looks to you, there is the Lord your God that goes with you. His presence is ever near. There's going to be a day when all these groups begin to pull out, but the Lord your God's never going to leave you and He's never going to forsake you. It is His divine presence in your life. Thirdly, there is the divine faithfulness. Verse 9 says, He is with you wherever you go. Amen. Amen. Boy, that's good. I'm going to tell you, you're going to go to some places where you wonder if God's with you. He's already said, I'm with you. I'm with you. Abide, obey. You shall do according to what is written in it. Obedience. J.C. Ryle says, ignorance of Scripture is the root of all error. Obey the Word of God. You see, you can't conquer the world if you're consumed by it. And by obeying the Word of God, we set our priorities and we set our standards and we set our lives and we know what to do and how to live. And disobedience to the light that we have hinders us from getting further light. We have to obey what God has told us to do. If you'll take time later to look through these verses and find the direct, non-negotiable commands of God to Joshua. Do this, do not depart, meditate, do according to what is written. All of the success of Israel hinged on one thing, abiding and obeying. Now, abiding plus obeying equals blessings. God said, you're going to have a successful way. How are you going to do that? You're going to do it by abiding and obeying. Martin Luther said, he who walks according to God's word acts wisely and happily, but he who goes according to his own head acts unwisely and to no profit. You see, when we disobey God, what we say in effect is, God can't be trusted. If you say today, I can't afford to give a portion of my income to God, then you're saying that you can't trust God with that portion. You're saying you can't even trust God with the other portion. What you're admitting is, is that you're a mismanager of your money and God's money. If you say, well, I can't do this. I can't, I can't obey God in this area of my life. I can't obey. Listen, you can't afford not to obey God. You must obey God because if you don't, it is a statement of your life and of your energies that says, I can trust God in every area, but I can't trust Him in that one. You see, what happens is God comes in and He writes an exclamation point. And we come behind it and take our little markers in our Bibles and we say, well, God, you may have said that authoritatively, but I'm going to put a question mark by it because I know it was good for them, but I don't know if it's good for me today. You see, how do you show your faith? You show it by obeying the Word of God. You see, if you trust God, you obey God. If you obey God, it's a sign that you trust Him. There's a call to abide and obey. Secondly, there's a call to prepare. Verse 10, Then Joshua commanded the officers of the people, saying, Pass through the midst of the camp and command the people, saying, Prepare provisions for yourselves, for within three days you are to cross this Jordan to go in to possess the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess it. 
could I tell you this morning that no one falls into victory. Nobody falls into victory. Nobody wakes up one day and says, Oh, well, I tell you, boy, yesterday I had carnality and I had lustful thoughts and I was out of God's will, but I don't know what happened. Clock went off this morning and all of a sudden I was filled with the Spirit. I wasn't filled with the Spirit this morning because I only got 45 minutes sleep last night. I was filled with everything but the Spirit this morning. You know, you don't fall into victory. You don't stumble into victory. You get it by abiding and obeying and preparing. It is by being with God that you become victorious. You don't become victorious because you stumble up on the winning number. You become victorious because you stay within the Word of God and you stay there by following God in the mundane events of life. You see, all of us have kind of gathered strength from one another, and we've gathered strength from the Lord in the midst of this crisis. Crisis brings out the best in us or it brings out the worst in us. But we have gathered our strength and we have pooled our resources and people have given of their time and of their energy and, and we are, we're, we're handling the crisis. We're getting a, a grip on the crisis. We're trying to figure out what we're going to do to get through this crisis. But I'm going to tell you, what's killing most Christians in this community is not the crisis. It's living for Jesus day by day is what's getting to them. It's living for Jesus in the mundane moments in the personal relationships with your family, in your finances, in your day-to-day -day living, in your choices about whether you're going to stand for Christ at work or not. It is in those moments, it's in the day and day and... You know, the problem with life is it's so mundane. A crisis is not mundane, but day-to-day -day living, and we just kind of go about our business and do our things, you know. And the problem is, how do we live victorious in the middle of that? How do we exercise the abundant life in the middle of that? You see, it is only by being faithful in the small things that God says, I can trust you with the big things. God wants us to prepare. Joshua tells the people to prepare. He didn't say, let's talk about preparation. He said, let's talk about it if we're qualified or if we're gifted or if we've got enough talent or if we have enough financial resources. He said, God's called us, now you go prepare. God has called us to do this. Graham Scroggie said, the only proof that we shall be equal to tomorrow's test is that we are meeting today's test courageously. The only evidence that we shall be willing for God's will tomorrow is that we are subject to God's will today. Preparation is an act of faith. Now, there's three things about preparation. First of all, you are to make preparation, and that involves making provisions, making provisions for the necessities. Now, did you notice, did you notice, does God not have a sense of humor? He says, you're about to cross Jordan. Gather provisions. Get you some bread and some water and some provisions. Now, you would think the Jordan River, most biblical archaeologists and historians tell us that the Jordan River was at flood stage. We can understand that picture, can't we? The Jordan River is at flood stage. It is impossible to cross. Joshua didn't say, okay, all right, we need a pontoon group over here. We need a boat building group over here. We need a bridge building group over here. He said, no, go gather bread. Gather bread. Make your provisions for the necessities. 
somebody said, yeah, I lived through the Depression. And, and the guy said, well, did, did you, were you able to eat during the Depression? He said, man, I had three meals a day. Oatmeal, cornmeal, and no meal. He said, make provisions, gather provisions for yourself. For 40 years, they had been eating manna. Now, the Hebrew word for manna is, what is it? When you've been eating that for 40 years, the answer is, you don't want to know. These people had been eating manna burgers and manna shakes and manna fries and manna potatoes and manana pudding and, and all these other things. I mean, they were sick of it. <laughs> God says, you tell them to go prepare. Why? Because the provisions for the desert would not be adequate for battle. You know, there are a lot of Christians that are still living on desert diets. And the reason that they're defeated in spiritual warfare and the reason that they're not walking in victory is they're not gathering the provisions for the necessities of their life that they need to gather. And so they're not prepared when the warfare and when the battle and the trumpet sounds and the bugler sounds, they're not ready to fight the battle. Any army knows you have to have rations to survive. In three days, this manna was going to stop. And if they didn't make provisions, they were going to starve. Now, when you're getting ready for battle, you've got to increase your intake and you've got to upgrade your diet. This manna was good, but it was only for a day. Now, God says, now you're going to have to prepare enough because in three days you're going into the land. I've been providing the food for you for 40 years. Now you're going to have to go out and forage for your own. You're going to have to go out and find your own. Hebrews 5.14 says, But solid food is for the mature who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Let me tell you why a lot of people are not going to be victorious. Not today, not any day in their life. Because they come to the professional milkman and ask him to dispense milk to them. They come in their spiritual baby clothes and they want a little milk to make them feel good about their lives but you try to give them any meat, and they go, whoa, wait a minute, that's too deep, preacher. That we, we don't understand that. That's too deep. Listen, God says you have got to sooner or later get to the point in your life where you can feed yourself, where you can take care of yourself spiritually, when you can stand on your own spiritually, when you have fed on the Word, have been abiding in the Word, obeying the Word, and preparing your heart in the Word so that when battles come, and when you are told to cross over, you are ready and you don't have to call in a panic and say, I, I don't know what God wants me to do. You know, how God want, you know how God wants you to do something? By abiding and obeying and preparing. Amen. There is a preparation that involves making provisions. There's a preparation that involves waiting, waiting. Deuteronomy chapter 8 is the chapter that talks about how God led them into the wilderness for 40 years that he might humble them and test them and show them what was in their heart to see whether or not they would obey the commandments of God or not. Now, one of the things when we talk about waiting is today is always preparation for tomorrow. Today is preparation for tomorrow. God led them into the wilderness. Now, many believers die in the wilderness, and they die never obtaining all that God has for them, and there are several reasons, and they're all found in Deuteronomy chapter 8. Because of time, we won't look at all that. Let me just give you the reasons. First of all, there's a failure to abide. A failure to abide. Remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you. A failure to obey 
whether or not you would keep his commandments, a failure to prepare, and a failure to wait. Now, the previous generation waited, and it cost them. They all died in the wilderness. Now, the last person has died that disobeyed God and wouldn't trust God, and now it's time. The new generation has arisen, and now it's time for these people some of them 40 years of age, some of them maybe 60 years of age because they, they got in just under the cut. And so now it's time for them to go into the land and they say, hey, we're ready. We're ready to take the land. We've been hearing about it. We've been walking around eating dust all this time. Now we're ready to go in and take the land. And God says, tell them to prepare provisions and I'll get back with you in three days. Three days? Why three days? i tell you why because God needed to tell a new generation that what I've called you to do, go out there and stare at that river. Now, you figure out how you're going to get across it. Now, once you realize you can't get across it, and that the only way you're going to get across it is that God himself is going to lead you across it, then you'll understand this is still an impossible task. It was impossible for your parents and grandparents. It is impossible for you. And the only way you're going to get across the river is you're going to go by me. You see, that's what God was trying to teach them, that they themselves had to wait. Oh, we want it now. We want instant gratification. We got instant oatmeal, instant coffee, instant cappuccino. We got instant everything. We got a microwave mentality. You know, you get in the line. I mean, I, the other night I was leaving trying to beat the curfew, and I, I was leaving, and I pulled in one of these fast food restaurants, and there were nine cars in line. I thought this must be what it's like in third world countries. We hate to wait. What do you mean the nine cars in line? Get more people in there to work. You know, this is fast food. We're supposed to have, let's go, let's get something going, let's get it moving. I mean, we hate to wait. But you see, God has to teach us to wait not only for his time, but for his timing. See, you can do the right thing at the wrong time. You can do the right thing in the wrong way. And you have to wait for God's timing. There is a preparation that involves waiting. Why do we wait? During that time of waiting, we watch to see what God is doing, and we abide and obey and we prepare because when he says move, we cannot say, well, wait, 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 God, wait, wait. We, we're not ready. We're not ready. You see, waiting time is preparation time. And once you've prepared, then God says, all right, now you can go. Can you imagine that group if the day that they realized that it was a day they could now begin to cross over, they just started crossing and didn't wait on God? Boy, they would have been in a mess. But there's a third thing. Preparation also involves choices. And it is amazing to me after thousands of years of biblical history and after all the years of church history that we still haven't learned much. Waiting and preparation involves choices. Now, there is a waiting that is a legitimate wilderness, but when you are dragging your feet, it is an illegitimate wilderness. Look, if you would, at verse 12. And to the Reubenites and to the Gadites and to the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, Remember the word which Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, The Lord your God gives you rest and will give you this land. Your wives, your little ones, and your cattle shall remain in the land which Moses gave you beyond the Jordan. But you shall cross before your brothers in battle array, all your valiant warriors, and shall help them. 
until the Lord gives your brothers rest as he gives you. And they also possess the land which the Lord your God is giving them. Then you shall return to your own land and possess that which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you beyond the Jordan toward the sunrise. By the way, that's a good word for us. The two and a half tribes had rest, but they had to go help the ones that didn't have rest. Until the job was through, then they could go back and rest again. You see, they had a job to do. Now, the setting of this is Numbers chapter 32. You don't worry, have to worry about turning there, but Moses has allowed and, and, uh, these two and a half tribes to settle on the wrong side of the Jordan, on the wilderness side of the Jordan River. He has told them they can settle there, but they've got to come in and help when the land is to be conquered. They can't just say, well, it's not our problem, not our job. We're not affected by it. We're not going to live there anyway, so it doesn't matter to us what happens to the rest of those tribes. It's every man for himself. He says, no, I'll let you settle there. I'll make the concession. I'll allow the tribes of Reuben and Gad and Manasseh to settle on the wrong side, on the wilderness side of Jordan, if you agree to go help your brothers. You've got to agree to go help the ones that are going across. You've got to agree to go be with them. Now, see what happened is these two and a half tribes saw this land and it looked good for livestock and for flocks, and they said, you know, we, we're not worried about making a life. We're worried about making a living. And so rather than making a life, we're going to make a living. We're going to care more about the flocks that we have than the family of faith, and so we're going, to, we're going to settle over here. By the way, if you read through the Old Testament, you will find that they had to build a center of worship, and they had to build a monument among those two and a half tribes because they were so far removed from Jerusalem that they would have forgotten even who they were related to had they not built the monument. Oh, you know, it's just so far. You know, that, that bridge is bad. It, it's so far to get over there and to go to Jerusalem to church to the Passover once a year. And it's, I tell you, it's just too much trouble. Let's just not worry about going this year. It's a long way to go back to church on Sunday night in Jerusalem. Let's just not worry about going. And so they had to build a monument, and they had to, to build the protection, and they had to build all the centers of worship. Why? Because they were on the wrong side of the river. Now, let me tell you what I think this passage says. I think it says that there are a lot of people who are borderline believers. They get right up to the river of death, which leads to the land of blessing. And they say, hmm, you know, that does look pretty. You know, I met a victorious Christian one time. In fact, they signed my Bible. I've been a victorious Christian one time, but I don't think I want to live that life. I don't think I want to pay that price. I tell you what, I'll just settle over here. I'll just live over here because, after all, this is, this is as close as you can get. You know, you can rub shoulders with godly people, but that doesn't make you godly. You can walk around in the midst of people who walk in the glory of God, but that doesn't mean you walk in the glory of God. It doesn't mean that any of it's going to spill off on you. They're borderline believers. Now, these people did keep their promise to help, but as soon as it was over, as soon as the battle was over, they went back to the land. The quote by Alan Redpath, they were perfectly willing to fulfill the bargain, to go into the land, to lead the army and taste of victory, but they were determined to go back to the comfort of the wilderness, the enjoyment and indulgence of it. 
You see, the wilderness is for wandering. It's not for living, but they chose to live there. It'll be easier to live there. That tells me something. It tells me that God lets you and I make the choice about the level of our Christian life. God doesn't say, well, I like you better than somebody else, so I'm, I'm going to let you have a better Christian life. No, you see, you determine, you determine, you determine where you are in your walk with God. Nobody else determines that for you. You determine it. If you're not victorious, it's your fault. If you're not living in victory, that's your choice. If you're not walking and abiding with God, you made the decision. And God says, you make your choice and I'll let you live there. God does to us as believers what Moses did to the people of Reuben and Gad and Manasseh. They came and said, we don't want to cross over. We don't want to go on. Moses said, okay. We come to God and say, God, I don't want to pay that price. I don't want to be that committed. I don't want to love you that much. All I want to do is get into heaven and I want to be saved as by fire. Just as long as I don't get fried in hell, that's all I want. I just want to get to heaven. God says, that's the way you want to live? That's fine. You live like that. You go ahead. You choose the level of your blessing. You choose the level of your living. You choose the level of your faith. You choose where you are. Dr. Havner said most church members live so far below standard, you'd have to backslide to be in fellowship. We are so subnormal that if we became normal, people would think we were abnormal. <clears throat> By the way, you know they talk about the lost tribes of Israel? They're not lost. I've got a news for all these prophecy experts who are trying to figure out where the lost tribes of Israel are. I'll tell you where they are. They're in Baptist churches all over America. Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh. Oh, they'll come. They may even throw a little money in the plate every now and then. In fact, if, you know, if you're nice and if you call them every week, They'll even come to Bible study once a month. If you remind those grown adults who are perfectly capable of making decisions to get up out of bed and come and worship God and remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy, if you'll do all that, then they may bless you by their presence. That's the tribe of Reuben and Gad and Manasseh. Oh, they'll get active every now and then. In fact, about one out of every 20 revivals, they'll come down and cry a little tear at the altar and make a little decision. But the minute the revival's over... They fall back into mediocrity and apathy and carnality. They rub shoulders with victorious Christians, but they don't ever experience victory. They hear great preaching, but they never live by the truths of it. You know what the problem with that is? You're still in the middle of the battle. You just don't experience any of the blessings. You're still in the middle of the conflict, but you never know what it's like to conquer. Those two and a half tribes went over. Yeah, we'll fight. We'll get over there. But just don't ask for a long-term commitment out of us. We want to go back, and here's all the people living in the promised land. Boy, they're having a hallelujah time and a wonderful time, and all the people on the other side of the river going, boy, it sure sounds like they're having a good time over there. What do you think they're doing? I don't think they're watching Andy Griffith reruns. What do you think they're doing? Boy, it sure sounds, wonder what they're up to over there. You see, you'll never know standing on the wrong side of the river. You've got to cross over. You've got to move across. And I tell you that there are people in the sound of my voice this morning and you are related to Reuben and Gad and Manasseh. You walk out, you may give, you may help, you may enjoy what this church offers, but when the service is over, you tuck your Bible under your arms and you walk out to your cars 
and you go back and live hell on earth and hope you get to heaven when you die. I watched people last week. I'm an observer of people. When I was in youth ministry, I didn't ride the rides. I just sat down and watched the people walk by. It's an interesting study. I don't know if you can get a doctor's degree in watching people, but people are interesting to watch. I watched people last week. I watched some folks walk out of here and do everything they could to keep from looking at those volunteer tables because if they looked at them, it'd remind them what they were rejecting. Well, I tell you, we went to church this morning. I tell you, not everybody got up and went to church this morning. By George, we're faithful. Boy, come rain or shine, floodwaters, I'm going to be at church and I'm going to tee off at 1230. <laughs> I'll tell you, I, I made it to church. I made it to church. Boy, I tell you, I hope he gets through because the tennis court's really going to be crowded this afternoon and I got to get to my tennis lessons. I got to make it over there to do that. Now listen to me, church. This is no time for playing games. Ballet and dance and all this other stuff is garbage when people are hurting. You hadn't got time for that, and you better not ask God to give you the resources to do that when there are people who have greater needs than for your children to learn how to parry and do all these kind of things. There are more important things. Don't walk out of here with your Bible tucked under your arm. Say, well, I didn't get flooded. Thank you, Jesus. I'm just so grateful I didn't get flooded. I'm just so grateful I... Don't walk out of here. You go help somebody who did. You go do something for somebody who doesn't have the resources to do something. You give of your energy. You give of your time. You give of your money. You give of yourself. You expend yourself to do something for other people who can't even do for themselves right now. You and I need to understand that the tribe of Reuben and Gad and Manasseh has possessed the church of Jesus Christ. And when that possesses the church of Jesus Christ, then people are on the wrong side of the river. When we go from amen to so what, then we're in trouble. Oh, I'm just, I'm just grateful God spared me. Are you grateful enough to do something for somebody who didn't get spared? You see, folks, we have a chance to prove whether Jesus is real and Jesus has changed our life or this is just talk and we just clean up well. You see, everything that cleans up well on Sunday doesn't shine for Jesus. Could I tell you this morning that you've got all of God you want? You trivialize sin. You trivialize your compromise. You trivialize what you do and don't do. You trivialize obedience to the Word of God. You trivialize time in the Word that you're supposed to spend. I, you got all of God you want. Well, you don't know. It's been a tough week, boy. I mean, this has been a, this has been a killer week. This has been a hard week. We've been working day and night. I'm going to tell you something. You do not have strength, nor will you work in the spirit in which God wants you to work. If you don't get in this Word and abide in it and obey it, you'll get out there and do it. Before you know it, you're doing it in the flesh and you're not helping anybody. If you're going to do it in the name of Jesus, you better spend time with Jesus so you can do it in His name. Because then you don't worry about who gets the credit. All you care about is he gets the glory. See, that's what we're about. We're about preparing. We're about making choices. But I want to ask you today, 
Have you made the choice to walk out again this Sunday in defeat? Or have you decided it's time to walk out in victory? The light of the Word of God shines on our hearts and tells us what we need to do. It tells us how we need to live. We either obey it or we don't obey it. I heard the story of the guy who, who went in the desert and he had his camel and he had, all he took to eat was three dates. And he reached into his knapsack and he pulled the, he, he just got down to the end of the day and he turned the light on, built his little tent and everything, got his lantern lit, you know. And he reached down into his knapsack and he, he pulled out a date and he looked at it and there was a worm in it. So he just threw it out. Reached into his knapsack and picked out a, another date and pulled it out and there was a worm in it. So he just threw it out. It was down to his last date. He reached over and <sighs> blew out the lamp, reached into the knapsack, closed his eyes and just took a bite. <laughs> you know what we do? Let's, let's be honest. It's just us folks here today, okay? God's Word says, here's the way I want you to live. Here's the way I want you to act. Here's how you can be Jesus in this world. Here's how you can represent the Lord Jesus as you go and as you do. But if you're going to do that, you're going to have to take some things out of your life. You've got some worms of worldliness crawling around in your life you're going to have to get rid of. You've got some disease in your discipleship. You've got some, some mildew eating away at the motivation to be in the Word. You're going to have to deal with it. You're going to have to cut through all that. You're going to have to let the light of the Word of God shine into the dark corners of your heart, and you're going to have to let Him deal with those things. We say, Lord, I don't want to do that. <sighs> Boy, now I can go out of here and do what I want to do. The biggest church in this town is not Sherwood. The biggest church in this town is the church of Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh. It needs to be the church that goes out of business in this town. And we need a church of conquerors, people who are willing to pay the price, to prepare, to wait, to choose God, and to cross over Jordan and make a difference for Christ.